So let's imagine just for a moment that you are sitting before the LOCC, part two. You weren't here last week. The LOCC is the Licensing, Ordination, and Consecration Council. It is that committee of pastors in our district, the South Atlantic District, within the Christian and Missionary Alliance, that is responsible for ordaining new pastors. Now, to be ordained, you have to go through a two-year process of further study, reading, being mentored, things like that. And the final step in the process is an oral examination when a number of pastors question you about the Bible and theology to ascertain as much as is possible your doctrinal fitness for ministry. That oral examination can take up to, up to three hours, especially if you're in my group, where 100, maybe 200 questions are asked about, again, Bible knowledge and theology. If you, if you pass the exam, then there follows a ceremony of sorts where you are officially ordained or set apart and recognized for gospel ministry. So, all that as a review for you. Let's imagine you have just been through the two-year process and you are now sitting before that committee. You're perspiring, at least you should be. You're shifting in your chair under the gaze of seasoned pastors. And the question is posed, who is Jesus? Or perhaps it, it, it is asked this way, do you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, and can you defend your answer with Scripture? How would you respond? Because you understand this is the core of the Christian faith. And I will tell you that those questions, and many like them, would be asked. Those questions are critically important, indispensable. Who is Jesus? And the LOCC is not the first person or persons to ask that question. You may remember when Jesus walked the earth, earth, He also asked the question. He had been in His public ministry for about three years. His disciples had been watching Him as He performed some, some pretty spectacular miracles, you know, healing everybody who came to Him, feeding thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, with a single boy's lunch, walking on water, calming storms, driving out demons. I mean, it was an impressive display of power. And not only that, they also heard his teaching. And the things that he taught, his knowledge of the Scripture was incredible. His ability to spar with the religious leaders was extraordinary. He spoke as one with authority. He spoke of, of God as his father. His resume was impressive, to say the least. And, and people were beginning to ask the question, could this Jesus be the long-awaited Messiah? Yeah, sure, there were his enigmatic teachings that kind of threw a wrench in things, like the time after he fed those 5,000 men plus women and, and children with that boy's lunch. They were ready to follow him anywhere. In fact, they were ready to make him king by force. I mean, throw a crown on his head, give him a sword, and let's go fight the Romans. Of course, it wasn't time for that, and so Jesus 
withdrew by himself to be alone. His bewildered disciples got into a boat and, and sailed to Capernaum, a few miles northeast of where they were on the, on the Sea of Galilee. And, but as they got halfway there, this big storm came up, and that's when it happened. You know, Jesus came walking on the water to them, and he got into the boat, and, and we read that immediately the, the, the boat was where it was headed, and the, and the storm was calmed. I mean, who could do that? Who is this Jesus? Well, the, the, the crowds, apparently, they, they ran around the seashore to meet the disciples just a few miles uh, when they landed at Capernaum, and, and, and amazingly, they saw that Jesus was with them. Now, they knew that Jesus had not set sail with them. They looked around, no other boats. How, how'd you get here? This would have been a great time for the disciples to say, hey, that lunchbox miracle yesterday, that was nothing. Uh, Jesus came walking up to us in the middle of the night in a storm on the water. His coronation would have been complete. But inexplicably, Jesus began with some of that, that confusing teaching. I mean, he surely did not know how to run an election campaign. He, he looked at the gathered crowds and said, truly, truly, that was his way of, uh, of saying, listen, this is true. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs. You know, those signs, by the way, that prove who I am, that answer that question, who is Jesus? You seek me not because you had incontrovertible proof. You seek me because you ate some loaves and were filled. You're just following me because I gave you a golden corral moment. In other words, they, they really didn't know who Jesus was. And so Jesus went on to say, truly, truly, listen up, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have not life in yourselves. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. I mean, what is that? That is confusing. That's weird. That's demanding. And so a few verses later, we read, as a result of this, meaning his teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Way to blow it, Jesus. Who is this man? I mean, does he want a following or not? A little while later, three years now into his ministry, Jesus and, well, the few disciples he had left are up in Caesarea Philippi. That's way north in Israel. It's about six months now until Jesus and his disciples will end up in Jerusalem on that, on that fateful Passover when he will be crucified, you know, making it possible for us to eat His flesh and drink His blood. Jesus knows His time is coming. So He looks at the disciples and He asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that Jesus is? It's a question. 
And the disciples respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist. You see, John had already been beheaded by Herod Antipas by this time. So the people were saying, hey, you're John. He's John raised from the dead. That's a it's a bit of a problem since John baptized Jesus. Two different people at the same time in the same place couldn't be John. It was still others said, you're Elijah. The, the Old Testament, said, you see, said that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah. In other words, they're saying, you're not, you're really cool. But you're not the Messiah. You might be the one, though, to announce the coming of the Messiah. Still others said you're, you're Jeremiah, uh, or maybe you're one of, the, one of the prophets raised from the dead. So, so Jesus looked them squarely in the eye and asked the question, who do you say that I am? So you're sitting before the LOCC, and they ask the question, who is Jesus what do you say? It's a fairly important question. I want to suggest to you this morning that your eternal destiny rests on the answer to that question. When Jesus asked the question, Peter, who always opened his mouth, answered, only this time he got it right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good answer, Peter. A little while later, Paul answers the question. His is a bit more lengthy. It's found in most of his letters, but none more clearly and strongly and gloriously than Colossians chapter 1. You see, some false teachers had, had shown up in Colossae, and they were, they were teaching some things that answered the question wrongly. They, they, they brought the exalted supremacy, the full sufficiency, and the absolute necessity of Jesus into question. So, so, so before addressing this false teaching specifically in chapter 2, Paul unleashes this hymn of inestimable value. How would you answer the question, who is Jesus? This is a great place to start. Listen to Paul's answer. Colossians chapter 1 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Are you impressed? You should be. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the, through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, were the things in the heavens or on, or in, on the earth or in the heavens. That is the answer to who is Jesus. I want you to understand that people have always attacked the person of Jesus Christ. As he is the centerpiece of our faith, if you answer the question incorrectly, if you lay him low, if you take him out, you destroy the Christian faith. 
Make no mistake about it. If you have the wrong answer to, the Christ, uh, to this question, then Christianity becomes meaningless. And so, some have wanted to say, he was just a man. He was a good man, a moral man with some r- radical teaching, changed the world, but a man nonetheless. That would be a growing number of people in our own society. Some would say he was just a a prophet, but not God. That, by the way, would be the Muslims. Uh, Others have said he was was sort of a God, a a little G God, but not a a big G God. That that would be Arius and and, uh, today's Jehovah's Witnesses. They, They say he's of a different nature, a different essence than God. Is that true? We'll see. Still others have said, well, sure, he, he, he's a God, but he started as a man, just like you. And just like he became a God, so can you. That, by the way, is the teaching of the Mormons. And so all, all of those questions uh, uh, during the last presidential election, let me be perfectly clear. I don't care who you voted for. Mormons are not Christians. Because if you destroy the biblical teaching about Jesus, if you answer the question wrongly, who is Jesus, then Christianity becomes meaningless. Others have said he was a good teacher. He, he reached a, a, a level of enlightenment that you, can, that you can too if you work hard enough. And you can be absorbed into godness. That would be the Buddhists and the Hindus. None of those answers are right, not according to Colossians chapter 1. Paul clearly says this, Jesus is supreme over creation, and Jesus is supreme over the church. This morning, we're only going to get to that first point. Jesus is supreme over all creation, and we'll see that that truth in the following ways. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the agent of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. He is the end of creation, meaning He is the purpose for which all creation exists. Listen to me. He is the reason you exist this morning. And if your answer to the question, who is Jesus, does not involve you falling on your face in worship, then you've destroyed Christianity. It's a fairly impressive resume. Paul starts by saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? The word image is the word icon, from which we get our word icon. And and the word was used to speak of an imprint the reflection, or the image of something that represents something else. Now, your first thought may be, well, okay, humankind was created in the image of God, so as as a man, of course, Jesus is in the image of God. That is not exactly what Paul means. Yes, it is true. We were created in the image of God to reflect His glory, but in the fall of humanity, into sin. The image was significantly marred. 
Notice I said significantly, I did not say irreparably. In redemption, we are being transformed to the image of Christ. But we are and will always remain created beings reflecting the image of God. Nowhere are we called God. Nowhere will we become God. We're not going to be absorbed into nirvana or the Brahman. We're not going to become a little G God like Jesus did one day, a la Mormonism. Nowhere are we called God. We are called the image bearers. We reflect the glory of God. Jesus, however, is the perfect image of God. The author of the book of Hebrews says it this way, and he, that's Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus represents God perfectly because, listen, he is God perfectly. We remember the words of John in the prologue to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory, as of the only begotten, remember that word, uh, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we actually saw the glory of God in Jesus. That's amazing. You see, both the Old and the New Testament make clear that no one has seen God. That is, God in all of His resplendent glory. But Jesus came to reveal God to us. In Jesus, the invisible became visible. This is what John chapter 1, verse 18 says. No one has seen God at any time The only begotten, there's that word again, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. He has has made Him known. He has revealed God. That's the idea of image here. Jesus reveals God to us. You see, that's why later, in the same book, Jesus said said to Philip, He that has seen me has seen the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul uses this idea of Christ being the image of God to say, in the gospel, we see the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So now John keeps using that word begotten. Now that's an important word that we've lost in many of our modern translations. He, He used The word, for example, in chapter 3, God so loved the world that He gave us only begotten. Some of you memorized it, one and only. Only begotten Son. The word speaks of begetting, of, of producing another of the same kind. What's that mean? Well, for example, not to be crass, but, but dogs beget dogs. Cats beget cats. Man begets man. And God begets God. Right. So the Nicene Creed from last week says it this way. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, 
true God from true God, begotten, not made, not created, of one being, of one essence, with the Father. Take that, Arius. You see, those words are critically important, and by the way, biblical. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, having come as God in the flesh to reveal God to us. Lots of other verses to which we could go to prove the deity of Jesus Christ, like uh, John 8, 58, where Jesus refers to himself as the great I am of the burning bush. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, where Paul calls Jesus God forever blessed. That's Jesus. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior. And Philippians 2, verse 6, where Paul says in that great hymn about Jesus, says of Jesus in the incarnation, Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but he, but he, Instead, he emptied himself. In other words, he was equal with God. Great verses if you're going to sit before the LOCC. Someone may want to pass those on to David. He's not here this weekend. So, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God revealing God to us. Second, Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you are reading with some attention and focus, that ought to cause you just a little bit of concern, maybe even a little bit of heartburn. The first, firstborn of all creation, does that mean that Jesus was the first one born? That, that's a problem. Obviously, it can't be referring to His incarnation because Jesus wasn't the first person born. Uh, okay, so, so firstborn of all creation seems, seems to indicate that he came into being at some point in the past before all of creation. He was the firstborn of all creation. That seems, I don't know, that seems to indicate that Jesus had a beginning. Uh, the Nicene Creed got it wrong. He's not eternal. Arius got it right. There was a time when Jesus was not. In fact, you should know this is a passage that both Arius and those Jehovah's Witnesses that, that knock on your door will appeal to to say, listen, Jesus is not God. He had a beginning. He was first, he was firstborn. If that's what firstborn means, if firstborn means first in chronology, we have a huge problem. And then we get to verse 18, and Paul says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, meaning Jesus is the first one raised from the dead. But you go, but wait a minute, that's not true. Just a few days before that, Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. During his ministry, he raised other people from the dead, including the, the, the widow's son. So, so, so maybe, maybe it doesn't mean first in chronology. Does the Scripture use the word firstborn to refer to something else? You know I wouldn't ask the question if it didn't. You bet it does. Let me give you a couple of very critical examples. 
in Psalm 89, verse 27, the psalmist is speaking of David, and by the way, prophetically of the Messiah, and God says, I will make him, David, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's confusing. How was Jesus the first, or excuse me, was David the firstborn in Jesse's family? Well, no, he was the seventh son. Okay, well, maybe he was the first, he's talking about kings here, maybe he was the first king in Israel. Nope, no, my Old Testament. Saul was the first was the first king. Well, David, maybe David was the first king in all the earth. Nope, not, not, certainly not. God says, I will make David my firstborn, and then he tells us what it means. The highest of the kings of the earth. Oh, so firstborn doesn't necessarily speak of chronology, but of rank or supremacy. I will make David, and by the way, prophetically the Messiah, the highest of the kings of the earth. And all of a sudden we remember, oh yeah, I remember something about king of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus is the firstborn, the highest or supreme of all creation. That's what he means. Consider also Exodus 4.22, just to add to your uh, knowledge. Moses says to Pharaoh, Moses says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go because, quote, Israel is my son, my firstborn. What? In what way was Israel the firstborn nation of God? Were they the first nation on the planet? No. The, Moses is talking to a, to a nation that predated Israel by centuries. Again, they're not first in chronology, they're first in supremacy. So also, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Another way of saying, a biblical way of saying that Jesus is supreme over, supreme in rank over all creation. One author says it this way, the title of firstborn, therefore, points to the unique and incomparable identity of Jesus Christ. The unique and incomparable because Jesus fills that seat and nobody else can. Firstborn. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says it this way, and when he, that's the father, brings the firstborn into the world, that's the fulfillment of Psalm 89, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Because Jesus is supreme, he is worthy of worship, and the Father actually calls for all of the angels to fall on their faces in worship to the supreme Son. Now the hymn then goes on to illustrate his supremacy over creation in verses 16 and 17. First, Paul says, Jesus is the creator, actually, more accurately, Jesus is the agent through whom the triune God created. What does that mean? The end of verse 16 tells us this truth. All things have been created through Him. Now, most of us know Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Old Testament clearly declares that God created the universe and everything in it. But then we get to the New Testament and we find that Jesus seems to be the agent through whom this creation came. 
Back in John chapter 1, we read, all things, that's everything, came into being through Him. That's through Jesus. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So He is before everything because He brought everything into being. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. And you, Lord, and that's Jesus, you, Jesus, in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So again, the New Testament makes clear that Jesus was the creator or the agent through whom the triune God created. And Paul here wants us to make sure that we understand what Jesus created. It's pretty simple, all things. We remember from last week that Paul used the word all or every eight times in this hymn to point to the absolute supremacy of Christ over all things. And we see that he created all things, both in the heavens and on the earth. That simply is a way of speaking to the totality of everything in the universe. Everything, write this down, everything that exists owes its origin to Christ. Everything that exists owes its origin to Christ. Paul goes on, just make sure we get it, both visible and invisible. This is talking about both the material and the immaterial or the spirit world. All has been created by Christ, even the immaterial spirit world. He even goes on to name some of that spirit or angelic world, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Some want to suggest that that is four classes of angelic powers uh, it, it was held then, and, and, and Paul seems to be giving some biblical, I'll use the word insight to that, that the angelic world, it was held then that the angelic world had some kind of order and perhaps rank. And, and these words seem to speak of order and rank and authority. The point is, Jesus created even the invisible beings, all of them, regardless of where they are in the pecking order. Good angels, bad angels, both, not the point. It's used all inclusively. Most of us know that God, through Jesus, created all of the angels, and when He created them, He created them good. And then in Revelation chapter 12, seems to refer to a time that Satan rebelled and a third of the angels followed him and they were cast out of heaven. And now we call those fallen angels demons. But Jesus even created them. Jesus even created Satan. See, that messes with some theology. Jesus and Satan are not equals. Jesus and Satan are not brothers as one of those Start to say moron. One of those cults teach. No, wrong. Jesus created Satan. Point that Paul is making is Jesus is the creator and therefore supreme over all things. Why? Well, because the false teachers seem to be advocating a worship of angels. That's what chapter 2, verse 18 says. He's talking about their teaching. He says, listen, don't let them defraud you of, of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. That's asceticism. We'll talk about that. Or the, or the worship of angels. The implication seems to be that the, 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 to be, you, know, you need to worship these angels. You need to put them on par with Christ. Or maybe some even suggest uh, above Christ. 
So right at the very beginning, Paul says, I want to be perfectly clear. I want you to understand something. Christ is supreme. He created the angels. They're the ones who are worshiping him. And just to make sure that we get the universality of Christ's creative work, Paul says in verse 17, he is before all things. In order to create all things, he had to be before all things. This speaks of Jesus' eternal preexistence. The Nicene Creed got it right. This is what it goes on to say. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father, by whom all things were made. That's actually the way it was written in the original, but it, the creed has since been updated to correspond to Colossians 1. Through him, all things were made because he is the agent of creation. Which brings us to our fourth point very quickly. I said that last service. Which brings us to our fourth point very quickly. And a little girl over here screamed. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I know that's where some of you are right now. You just like want to scream. I like really, my head is is swimming already. we got two more quick points. Not only did Christ create all things, but he sustains all things, verse 17. In him, that means in the sphere of his existence, in the sphere of all that he is, he holds all things together. Meaning, not only does everything owe its origin to Christ, but all things owe their ongoing existence to Christ. All things owe their continuing existence, and one used the word, or several used the word, coherence. You wouldn't even cohere. I don't know, look it up. You wouldn't even cohere if it wasn't for Jesus. I'm not a scientist, not a biologist, not a physicist, not a chemist. Not any of that. Sometimes I get confused about history and English, but I'm not. I'm not going to venture into discussions about laminum. Some of you want me to. Or nuclear glue. Or the universe and the planets and the immensity and all of that. I'm not going to take, I'm not going to do that. I'm simply going to take this verse for what it says. Listen, my Jesus holds all things together. And if for one moment Jesus stopped holding all things together, the universe would cease to exist. Talk about a big bang. What does, that, what does that mean? What does it look like? I don't know. Not a scientist. Would there be a quick and mo- momentary end, or would it take a little longer as entropy was given full reign? Would electrons um, cease to circle nuclei? Everybody wants to talk about that. And would planets cease in their orbits? And would gravity cease to work? Would your bodies just explode? Don't know. Not a scientist. And there are A lot of people in this room are a lot smarter than I am. I am not going to get into that. All I know is this verse says that the Creator created all things and the Creator sustains all things. He holds it all together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it this way. He's the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things. Upholds all things by the word of His power. I like that. (laughs) I mean, we're, we're talking God. He doesn't even need to exert any strength, you know. I'm thinking that maybe it would at least take your bicep to hold the universe together. It takes him a mere word to hold it together. And so, if God is big enough to create the universe in a word, if he's big enough to hold it together in a word, he is certainly big enough to hold your life together.
if you'll let him. Folks, he knows what he's doing. Nothing is too big and nothing is too small for him to handle. Every once in a while, someone asks a question. I don't know whether to take this to God. It's such a little thing. Really? <laughs> really? It's such a little thing. Is it so, so, so is there something that would maybe be then too big? Everything is little compared to God. Take it to him. He already knows anyway. Finally, back in Colossians 1, the NAS in verse 16 starts with, for by him all things were created. I think most of your translations have it that way. That's an unfortunate translation. A more literal translation would be in him. In him all things were created. So what's the difference? Well, in Christ is a basic concept for Paul. All things were created in him, in his sphere, or better, think of it this way. All things were created in reference to Christ. Everything has, from the beginning of time, its orientation to him. And the, and the verb is very specific at the beginning of the verse. I kind of like this. At the beginning of, of verse 16, he says, all things were, were, were created in him. Aorist tense. At some point in the past, when there was nothing and God spoke and everything came into being, that happened in a moment in, in, in time. But the end of the verse says, all things have been created through him and for him. That's a different tense. It's the perfect tense, which makes, okay, it happened at a point in time past, but it has on going effect. Don't miss that. It's very important. All things were created at a point in time past in Him, through Him, and for Him, ongoing effect. Make no mistake about it. Every molecule, every atom that exists in this universe is for Him. I'm a little excited. That's the last point. He is the end or he is the goal of all creation. He is the purpose for which everything was created. Look at the end of verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. That, that's a unique thought. That was unknown in the Old Testament. That was unknown in Jewish extra-biblical literature. That's different. All things were created for Jesus. Now, a couple more things and I'm done. Look at all of those prepositions which speak to Jesus' activity in creation. All things were created in Him, all things were created through Him, and all things were created for Him. In, through, and for Him. That is fairly exhaustive. And all of those prepositions appear again in the second verse of the hymn. It was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things for himself. In him, through him, and for him. In other words, the answer to the question, who is Jesus? The answer is everything. It is all in him and through him and for him. Paul's doxology in Romans 11 says it this way. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And therefore to him be the glory forever. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, which gives us the theme of the book. It is the summing up, the summing up of all things in Christ. All things, which means you were created for him. You 
Here, here's, the, here's the point of application. We're, saying, well, we've just been talking about Jesus all morning. What about me? Here's how you fit in. You are for him. That's why you exist. So again, the answer to the question, who is Jesus? The answer is simply, well, everything. Last week I said, any teaching that diminishes the, the supremacy, the sufficiency, and necessity of Jesus Christ is unbiblical heresy. This week I say to you, brothers and sisters, anything less than a life lived fully for Christ is a life of futility and ultimate idolatry. Because it is all for Him. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we just went through three verses that didn't talk about me. Um, and that's sometimes kind of where, where, where we are. We, we want to think, you know, how does this truth apply to my life? What am I supposed to do about this? What, what, how is this about me? And you have reminded us this morning very clearly, very articulately through Paul's amazing hymn that it is all about Jesus. And so, Father, the point of application for us is to keep Jesus as the treasure, the absolute treasure of my heart. Help me to do that in Christ's name. Amen.